All right, podcast family, welcome back to another episode. As I've said many, many times before, this is why you've got to stay on top of the data. Because just when you think, hey, I've got one disease state down cold, I get that clinical entity, I'm good. Yep, there's a new update. In September 2023, ACOG's going to release a new committee opinion, which is going to replace the previous one, which is number 631, released back in May of 2015. That prior committee opinion was called Endometrial Intrapathelial Neoplasia, or the EIN committee opinion. That's the one that basically said, hey, let's get away from the simple and complex nomenclature for endometrial hyperplasia, and let's just call the one that's most closely linked to endometrial CA development, EIN. Plus, that way we're talking the same language as CIN. All right, that made sense. But in September 2021, just in about two weeks from now, ACOG is going to release a new committee opinion, which is now titled Management of Endometrial Intrapathetal Neoplasia or Atypical Endometrial Hyperplasia. In other words, EIN is now being called EIN-AEH. So it's a combined endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia dash atypical endometrial hyperplasia. Why the name switch? I'm going to explain in this episode. And we're going to go back to the original 2015 committee opinion and kind of lay out that data. And then we'll highlight what's new regarding endometrial atypical hyperplasia or EIN. They're not two different things. They're actually the same condition. But the wording has changed, and I'll explain why in this episode. We're also going to give new highlights regarding what's the best way to sample the endometrial cavity after EIN or after AEH is being considered as a diagnosis. And does the IUS, the 52 milligram levonorgestrel intrauterine system, does that have a role in the conservative management of this condition? We've got lots to cover, lots of material to go through. So let's cover in this episode, the new clinical committee opinion, which is no longer called a committee opinion. It's now called the clinical consensus. Remember the college changed some terminology some years ago. So now this new clinical consensus, which is number five, is replacing the old committee opinion, which was back in May 2015. So let's cover this now. Back in 2015, ACOG stated in its committee opinion on endometrial intrapathelial neoplasia that the purpose for that committee opinion was really to, to resolidify the nomenclature, okay? Now, this is super important because this is a change from the September 2023 publication. As stated back then by the college, quote, the focus of this committee opinion, again, the one in 2015, is the classification of endometrial hyperplasia and treatment options, end quote. So yes, it went through management, of course, but it really was making the point that perhaps the EIN designation, which is the one that most clearly mirrors CIN3 or carcinoma in situ on the cervix level, that perhaps EIN designation has advantages advantages over the WHO scheme that uses simple or complex hyperplasia with or without atypia. We're going to go over that in just a minute. But again, according to the college back in 2015, it stated, quote, 
At present, the endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia scheme, in other words, that classification, is best tailored to closely meet the objective of defining what is actually pathological versus non-pathological, end quote. All right, y'all get that? So back in 2015, ACOG says, hey, yes, WHO uses simple and complex hyperplasia with or without atypia. That's fine. I get that. However, the other scheme, which is the EIN scheme uh, is really the one that we're talking about here because this is the one that's really linked to problems and the one that may be harboring occult malignancy. So back in 2015, according to the college, the bad one, what we then called complex hyperplasia with atypia, would then be called EIN and everything else would simply called uh, endometrial hyperplasia, which would by definition mean it would be benign. All right. But this is different. Remember, I said this is different than September 2023 because now ACOG says, yes, there's two schemes. I'm going to review that in a minute. Um, and the truth is, whether you want to call it EIN or atypical endometrial hyperplasia, uh, AEH, that's fine. I mean, call it whatever you do. Uh, you know, tomato, tomato. Let's not get into arguments about names. The big issue is how to treat it. I like that. So while in 2015 it did give the nod to EIN as the preferred scheme for nomenclature, um, even again, I'm looking at it right now, committee opinion from 2015, quote, endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia is the preferred terminology that will be used throughout this document, end quote. This document meaning, again, the old committee opinion. But now I'm going to read you what ACOG stated in the upcoming 2023 publication. They're like, look, Either one is fine. I don't really care what you call it as long as we're both considering this the pre-malignant endometrial lesion. And what's more important is that you recognize it and do something about it and don't miss an occult cancer because EIN slash AEH is an endometrial cancer to a proven otherwise. Before we get into the specific management issues, we have to recap, we have to review the two nomenclature systems that we just touched on just a moment ago. Remember that the one that most people are familiar with are the simple and complex hyperplasia with or without atypia. And that goes all the way back to the World Health Organization back to 1994. Now, I'm going to tell you the rule of eights regarding this scheme. And if you remember the rule of eights, you'll never forget it in terms of which one has a propensity to go into endometrial cancer. So let's start with simple hyperplasia. Simple hyperplasia, of course, can have either with or without atypia and the same holds for complex endometrial hyperplasia. It can be with or without atypia. But simple hyperplasia as a group has a 1% risk of conversion or, or later harboring endometrial adenocarcinoma. So simple hyperplasia, 1% complex hyperplasia by itself, just as a category, is 3% risk of progression into endometrial carcinoma. Okay, so simple hyperplasia, 1%, complex, 3%. The rule of eight is that with atypia, you multiply each of those risks by eight. So that simple hyperplasia with atypia is 1% times eight. It's 8% risk of endometrial carcinoma. Whereas, and here's a clinical pearl, complex hyperplasia with atypia is three times 8%. So you get 24% risk of endometrial malignancy. So you see why the atypical value here, whether it's simple or complex, is the multiplier, all right? 
So anytime that you have atypia, whether it's simple or complex, you multiply, you increase that risk of malignancy about eightfold. That's why ACOG calls this endometrial intrapathetal neoplasia dash AEN. All right. So anything with atypia, nuclear atypia is a flag. Yes, your highest chance is when you also have a crowded glands and stroma, which is the complex variety. But the most important factor isn't that it is the nuclear atypia. And we're going to go over the, the nomenclature here in a little bit more detail. But remember the WHO 1994, simple or complex with or without atypia. Simple is 1%. Complex is 3% risk of endometrial malignancy. And then with atypia, each of those risks multiplies by eight. No, that rule of eight is not in the 2015 committee opinion or the new clinical consensus guideline because I learned that, oh my goodness, when I was a resident and it still holds true today. That came out of the GOG, the gynecology oncology group, the research group for gynecology oncology back when I was a resident and those numbers still hold true to this day. All right, so the WHO uses that four-tier system, simple or complex, with or without atypia. But then came in 2014 a simple two-tiered system. That's why ACOG back in 2015 kind of liked this one better because the more complicated and the more options, the more we're going to mess it up, right? Let's call it what it is because people are people. So this is give two options, right? Everything else that's benign and then those that are closely linked to harboring endometrial malignancy or to the development of endometrial malignancy. And that was hyperplasia without atypia. That was the benign endometrial hyperplastic group. And then the atypical hyperplasia, which was then called EIN. All right. So in 2015, ACOG said, look, there's a four-tier system from WHO. How about this two-tier system called EIN and everything else that's not uh, including nuclear atypia? We'll just call that benign. But the truth is, it, it's not that clear cut. So in this revision, in this new clinical consensus, knowing that things aren't so easily put into boxes, that's why the term got broadened into uh, the usual EIN, but now also including the atypical endometrial hyperplasia nomenclature. So it is now EIN-AEH endometrial intrapathetal neoplasia dash atypical endometrial hyperplasia simply to capture so we don't miss uh, any nuance here that really what's at, at the heart of this problem is the presence of nuclear atypia. You see, that was back in 2015, two-tier system, four-tier system, pick one. But again, now it's merged. And I don't want to leave everyone with a thought that it's all about the nuclear atypia. Because while that is the big factor, hence the name, atypical endometrial hyperplasia, there are other factors here that define uh, a true pre-malignant endometrial lesion, all right? So remember, we're talking about this timeline. We have 1994 with the WHO, the 4 tiered system, then in 2014, the two-tiered system, and then just three years ago in 2020, the WHO, the World Health Organization, expanded on the diagnostic criteria for EIN, okay? And so it said, look, if we're going to stick with EIN, yes, we realize that there's atypia present, that's, that's a big hallmark, but there also should be two things, and they call that essential criteria, and desired criteria. All right, so let's get into this now. The essential criteria for atypical hyperplasia, or EIN, includes crowded glandular architecture and altered epithelial cytology distinct 
from the surrounding endometrium. In other words, there has to be these pockets of not just atypia, but crowded glandular architecture. Do you all see that wording there? Crowded glandular architecture. We're talking about in the WHO original scheme, that's complex hyperplasia with atypia. All right, so that represents the essential criteria. But then WHO said there's also some desirable criteria. In other words, some ancillary markers that could say, yes, this is definitely pre-malignant. These include things like loss of immunoreactivity for PTEN, PAX2, or mismatch repair proteins. In other words, the desirable criteria like is, is hey, it'd be nice if you all showed molecular changes as well. But remember, that's desirable, not essential. So the essential are the nuclear atypia and the crowded glandular architecture. And then desirable are more like the molecular findings on special stains. Okay, this is what frustrates people about medicine. And I kind of like it. I think this is neat. I think this is proof that medicine is alive and ever evolving and ever changing. That's why it, it keeps you on your toes. Thank goodness that we're not in a static discipline that's like, well, this is where we've always done it. That'd be boring. Because remember what I read you earlier in the prior committee opinion? Remember, we don't call it committee opinion anymore. Now it's clinical consensus. But back in 2015, they said, hey, uh, EIN is definitely the preferred nomenclature. We're going to use EIN in this document. That's what it said. Okay, great. But now in September 2023, the college states, quote, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists does not recommend one terminology scheme over another, end quote. Ah, changes abound. <laughs> so it doesn't matter what you call it, just call it the right thing. And I like that. I, I, I like that because the focus is recognizing that this is truly a problem. EIN is, is bad guys, all right? Let's leave it uh, at that. We, we got to act on something. Now, even though the definitive therapy is hysterectomy, which we're going to talk about in a minute, in those that have no children and, and still desire children, there is a very, very conservative place for conservative management. I'm going to explain that in a minute. And that includes the IUS. Boom, there's your spoiler. But, uh, but the idea is that th this is really a bad thing until proven otherwise because EIN or atypical endometrial hyperplasia uh, honestly can harbor malignancy. And once I tell you that percentage of the cases where at hysterectomy, they're like, oh, this is actually cancer, you'll see why this should not be taken lightly. All right, podcast family, we're going to focus on the diagnosis of EIN, not who gets a biopsy. That's a separate issue, okay? So for purposes of this episode, we assume that you know when to biopsy and when not. And the short of it is have a low threshold of when to do an EMB. Because even though an EMB is not perfect, and we'll discuss that in just a moment, it does provide... Uh, it's a very uh, conservative way, still invasive though, but minimally invasive. It, it, it finds a way to diagnose global endometrial pathology in patients with abnormal bleeding or worrisome risk factors for endometrial CA. So again, this episode, I don't want to focus on those risk factors, although here's what I found interesting. We have cutoff values for postmenopausal endometrial thickness of what's abnormal, right? Which is four millimeters. But here's a question for you. What happens if you do a pelvic ultrasound on a postmenopausal patient for whatever reason and she's completely asymptomatic, okay? So no vaginal bleeding, she feels great, but you find that the endometrial thickness is above a certain cutoff, say 10 millimeters, but she's not bleeding. 
Should you biopsy that? You see, we know what to do in the postmenopausal patient who is bleeding and we do a transvaginal ultrasound. And if the lining, the endometrial thickness is greater than four millimeters or five millimeters based on who you read, but here in the US, we use four millimeters, then you're going to biopsy that. But what happens if they're asymptomatic and it's thicker than that? There's an answer for that. And I don't want to get into it in this episode. Maybe we'll leave that for the next one. Or conversely, what if a patient is premenopausal but has a, quote, thickened endometrial lining, end quote. And I put that in quotes because, oddly enough, there really isn't been a, a, a one guidance on what is considered thick in the premenopausal patient. Now, if you hear that, well, we don't know what's thick, especially right before a cycle, it can be pretty thick. But what is pretty thick? I mean, if you find a lining that's 33 millimeters, is that normal? That's pretty thick. No, that's abnormal. <laughs> So while we have a defined cutoff, we know what to do above four millimeters, postmenopausal bleeding, you biopsy that. But what about in the premenopausal? Is there an absolute number? There actually is. But because there's so much variance and, and because the accuracy of finding a true pathological lesion is so small, um, then in most professional societies, including ACOG, has shied away from using an endometrial thickness in premenopausal patients. But there is one. Maybe I'll leave that for the next episode. So uh, what level is too thick for an endometrial lining in an asymptomatic patient, either premenopausal or postmenopausal? There is data for that. But that is absolutely not what we're talking about here. <laughs> we're talking about the assumption that you've done a biopsy for whatever reason, A, B, or C, and the pathology comes back, ooh, crowded gland architecture, there's some nuclear atypia here. Uh, I, I'm going to call this uh, atypical hyperplasia slash EIN. What do you do with that? Well, the first thing is you bring her back quickly because that is a true pathological entity. And listen to this next clinical pearl. Here's the big one. According to the college, the percent of patients who are diagnosed with EIN-AEH, remember that's endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia, atypical endometrial hyperplasia, and the new nomenclature, those patients who undergo hysterectomy, which is the right thing to do, have an endometrial cancer found at hysterectomy, not found before, that ranges anywhere from 30% to nearly 50%. That's 5-0%. Do y'all get that? That's why EIN-AEH is a big deal. So when you bring these patients back, you're like, look, uh, you pretty much need a hist. And not a super cervical hist, but a real hist. And if that's a no-go for you, then we have to be very conservative and follow very close surveillance because this is cancer to proven otherwise. Now, thankfully, it's not 80%, it's not 90%, but 30 to 50% is pretty darn high. So the college states, if you're going to do a fertility sparing procedure, in other words, like a DNC uh, and then medical management, you've got to make sure that endometrial cancer is not in that cavity. So we don't just leave it with an EMB, with an endometrial biopsy or pipel test to go, oh, you've got atypical hyperplasia, we've got a diagnosis, you've got to keep looking. So once a patient has been diagnosed with EIN-AEH, you've got to keep going. In other words, you've got to keep the assessment, the diagnostic tests rolling, quote, to avoid potential under-treatment of an unknown malignancy, end quote. And that's according to the college. 
So what's the best way to sample the cavity after you get a working diagnosis of EIN-AEH? Well, of course, there's different ways to do that. However, even a DNC, which is still blind, can miss focal lesions. And the reason that 30 to 50% of hysterectomized samples will end up having a cancer is because even with blind techniques like a DNC or an EMB, is that if there's a mass lesion, if there's something that is pushing on the endometrial cavity, hours, maybe a little myoma, then that's going to deflect the pipel and you're going to miss certain areas of the cavity, all right? So uh, I'm not X-naying an EMB. An EMB is fantastic. But remember, an EMB, we place a lot of value on that, that that's the end-all, be-all. And, and it's really not. It's not a comprehensive evaluation of the endometrial cavity. So because of that, ACOG states, quote, Hysteroscopic guided uterine sampling is recommended and data demonstrates its utility for the diagnosis of endometrial polyps, endometrial cancer, and endometrial hyperplasia. Now, there are several tissue removal devices that, that you can use uh, that actually morselate the tissue and then send it and collect it into a catch. That's the better way to do that, all right? Now, let me be very clear. No, this podcast is not... Uh, sponsored by TrueClear or, or Hologic or any of the other intrauterine morselators. But the college does say, quote, sampling methods that yield crushed or very small samples like using jawed devices or things that use cauterized loops are not recommended, end quote. So I use the old resectoscope, right? And then you had big flakes into the cavity. I trained with a resectoscope uh, and that had a purpose and a, and a role. But because of the cautery effect, you can destroy a lot of the tissue. So I trained with a resectoscope and then I moved over to a, a intrauterine morselator. There's Myosure, there's True Clear. Again, this is not a branded issue. Those are not sponsors. But ACOG does say, this is a big move for the college. Before, before this, it was like, hey, do whatever you want to do. Uh, just make sure that sample the entire cavity. Well, the only way to know that you sampled the entire cavity is with a hysteroscopic guided approach. Okay, so let's keep moving down our little storyline here. You have a patient you suspected of having some abnormal pathology intracavitary. You did an EMB. Boom, it comes out EIN-AEH. You're like, oof, I've got to make sure nothing else is in there. So you proceed to a hysteroscopic uh, morselation or removal of tissue. And yes, you definitely find that there's EIN-AEH. Okay. Well, even though you've made sure that you've sampled the cavity well, it's still recommended. Remember, the treatment, the definitive choice here is hysterectomy. So the primary objective in the management of a patient with EIN-AEH, according to the college, is to rule out endometrial cancer and make a treatment plan that can prevent or delay the progression to cancer. And the best way to do that is by undergoing hysterectomy. So I want to be very clear, you're doing the hysteroscopic guided sampling not just to remove the, the cavity, the tissue in the cavity and to get a good sample, but also to make sure that there's no cancer. That is not the substitute for definitive treatment, okay? So if you're getting ready to take your oral boards, the, the gold standard treatment for EIN or AEH is a hysterectomy. Hysteroscopic examination is to make out that you're not missing a concurrent carcinoma. And since we talked about an oral board prep, let's say your examiner says, well, doctor, your patient is very concerned about having her cervix removed and would like to keep her cervix uh, at time of hysterectomy for EIN. And what is your counsel?
Well, the short answer is no way. <laughs> Can't do it because endometrial tissue can be in that cervical canal. And so supracervical hysterectomy is not allowed for this procedure, right? It is a total hysterectomy. Now, of course, as we mentioned before, for some patients, hysterectomy is a no-go. They're like, I have no children. I, I want to try to have a child. So we're not doing that. That's totally okay. Remember, this is part of shared decision-making. But if you're not going to do a hysterectomy, then you have to follow a very close follow-up uh, to ensure that there's no progression. And we're going to talk about medical management in just a minute. But before we leave this whole idea of hysterectomy, one last clinical pearl regarding the, the hist and, and that time of its performance, okay? So the clinical pearl is during the performance of the hysterectomy intra-op, it's best practice to call a gynecology oncologist or uh, get your pathologist on board, let them know what you're doing so that at time of specimen removal, they open up the uterus and they do an intraoperative evaluation. Now, let's be very clear here. The only reason you're doing that intraop evaluation is to find out if there's endometrial cancer inside of that, all right? So you're gonna open up the pear and look at the seeds in the middle to see if there's anything there that looks like cancer. But you should only do that, really, you only need to do that if you've got Genonc on standby. Because <laughs> if you do find something that looks kind of weird, well, and, and you don't have Genonc on, on standby, well, you can't do anything about it, right? Don't do, don't, don't try to do nodes yourself if you're not qualified to do that. I'm not doing that because I'm not gynecology oncology. So as ACOG states, quote, the intraoperative evaluation should be directed by a qualified pathologist or a surgeon with experience in evaluating the uteri of endometrial cancer patients and should include a gross examination of the open specimen and possible frozen section. But that's if you've got somebody on standby. ACOG does recognize that sometimes there's, there's nobody around based on where you're working. There, there may not be Genoc in your hospital. And ACOG has a way out of that as well. Quote, in settings without access to local oncology expertise, then there's no role for intraop assessment of the specimen. End quote. So, if you've got it, use it. So always be in contact with your genonc. Hey, I'm giving you a heads up. I got a patient with EIN. I'm taking her for hist. Uh, you know, best as I can tell is just EIN. That was based on her EMB. And I sampled the cavity as well with hysteroscopy. And we did that in the office because we did a hysteroscopy, a morselation in the office under paracervical block. And, and I don't think it's anything else. But weird stuff has happened. So can I call you on standby? That's the proper technique. Okay. So if you're getting ready to do your oral boards and, and the answer, and the question is, how do you work up EIN? Well, number one, I, I got to suspect it. I have to have a patient, a high index of suspicion for my patient. So I'm going to do a biopsy. And if the biopsy says anything with atypia or EIN, boom, I'm going to move out to really sample the cavity and make sure I'm not missing an occult cancer. So I'm going to do a hysteroscopic assessment because if, if that hysteroscopic assessment does find endometrial carcinoma, then I want to refer that to gynecology oncology. See, that's why you're doing the, the hysteroscopy. It's not to clean out the cavity only and to make sure you're not missing out a cancer. But if you do identify a cancer, you want to send that to a cancer specialist. Okay, so I've had people say, well, wait a minute, if I'm going to take her for a hist anyway, then why do I need to do hysteroscopy? Because if you find cancer, you want it to be done by the appropriate individual. 
Okay, so that's why hysteroscopy is done. Well, you do hysteroscopy, you confirm it's EIN, and to the best of your knowledge, it doesn't look like endometrial cancer. She accepts hysterectomy, and then intraop, if you've got Genonc available, you're going to do an intraoperative assessment, which may include frozen section. But if hysterectomy is not desired by the patient, then you walk through the next step that we're about to talk about, which is conservative management with progestins. Okay, we're moving on. When we come back, let's talk about conservative management, either with oral progestin therapy, is one kind of medicine preferred over the other, and the use of an intrauterine system at 52 milligrams levonorgestrel. So our patient with EIN, atypical endometrial hyperplasia, says, no thanks, hysterectomy is not for me. What's next? Well, after significant coaching <laughs> that potentially we're missing something that's potentially bad, then you say, well, there is a place for conservative management, but you've got to buy into this long-term, up to two years of follow-up about sampling every three to six months. But if you choose that, then, then, then we can come up with a game plan. Traditionally, continuous Oral progestin therapy was the only regimen that was endorsed. But now we know that the intrauterine system, only the one that's 52 milligrams of levonorgestrel, also has very good data. So let's knock out the oral medications first. Historically, of course, it's either been medroxyprogesterone acetate or megase, which is magestrol acetate. And the truth is that there is insufficient evidence to recommend one formulation of oral progestational agent over the other because there's been no direct comparisons been uh, studied or published. So you can use either megestrol acetate or megase or medroxyprogesterone acetate. All right, so Provera orally or megase orally. And remember, continuous is better than cyclic. The problem is there's no real standardized protocol of what to do with that. But in general, the most conservative is that for patients that are being treated with these progestational agents, whether it's oral or intrauterine, we'll discuss that in just a minute, you've got to assess for a treatment response anywhere from three months after initiation to six months. And you should continue that based on expert opinion up to two years. For patients that are given progestational agents for this treatment, repeat histological assessment within three to six months is recommended in order to find out what kind of treatment response is happening. Now remember, there's different options here. The first is complete resolution. I mean, the thing just goes away. That's fantastic, that's what we want but may not happen for everybody. The next thing that can happen is regression can still happen, but there's still hyperplasia, but now it's without atypia. So you're moving in the right direction. You've gotten rid of atypia, so that's good. So the first is complete resolution. The second potential outcome that we need to tell patients about is, hey, it's getting better, but you still have some kind of hyperplasia. But as long as there's no atypia, we're moving in the right direction. The third possible outcome with medical therapy, whether it's oral or intrauterine, is that there's no change, all right? So it hasn't gotten worse, but it's exactly the same. And then, of course, the, the least one that we want, the, the worst outcome, is that now it progresses to cancer. Again, I'm not saying that that's going to happen. That's the least likely because progestational agents do something. But those are the four options. Complete resolution. It's still there, but it's getting better. The third is that's kind of stable. Nothing happened at all. And then the fourth is, ooh, it actually progressed going the wrong way. And now it's cancer. 
Patients need to know these four outcomes at the start, right? Because we can't give them a medication with a false premise that, hey, you take this, you'll be good. Everything's all right. I mean, it's going to be just fine. We don't know that. So those are the four possibilities, okay? And they also have to be prepared that it can take a while for the tissue to resolve. Because if you do that biopsy in three to six months at the, after the initiation of therapy and nothing has happened... It is totally okay to not freak out as long as it hasn't progressed to cancer, guys, all right? So as long as it's anything else but that fourth option, uh, then it's perfectly okay to continue treatment for three to six months to see what happens then because sometimes three months is just not enough or the initial six months is not enough. So ACOG says, quote, if there's no response or at least some regression during the first three to six months of therapy, An additional three to six months of therapy can be considered after discussion with the patient. ACOG goes on to say, quote, If there is no response after nine to 12 total months of therapy, then other management options, including definitive surgery, should be discussed, end quote. Now, let's say option one did happen, okay? You started her on oral medication or the IUS, which I know we still haven't gotten to, but we will. Uh, and you check her at three to six months, and man, it's complete resolution. Great. Well, then what do you do? Well, you've got to keep looking. So once, even you, even though you have complete resolution, you've got to continue endometrial sampling in these patients about every three to six months. And ACOG says to do that up to two years. And the reason is because recurrence rates are real. In the new clinical consensus, ACOG quotes a systematic review that states that a recurrence rate of up to 23% has been found for patients that are treated medically up to 24 months after initiation of medical therapy. So this is real. So 23% recurrence up until 24 months. That's why ACOG states, quote, Experts recommend discontinuing surveillance biopsies after two years for patients without evidence of persistent disease, recurrence, or progression who are asymptomatic without vaginal bleeding, end quote. So those are all of the caveats on when to stop doing biopsies and surveillance after what seems to be successful medical therapy, either oral or intrauterine, which is a period of two years. All right, everyone, let's bring this home by touching on the levonorgestrel intrauterine system. Now, I, I do have to say just one little pet peeve. Oh, one little pet peeve. I, I know I got to I gotta release it. I got to let it go. Breathe. Breathe. Because if you follow the podcast, you know that one of my things oh, just drives me crazy is that when people still say, uh, she's got menorrhagia. Don't use that. That thing went away in 2011 or menorrhagia. I got somebody asked me the other day, oh my gosh, a question about, hey, I have a patient with menorrhagia and I was wondering about this and I just totally went off and I didn't even answer the question because I was so stuck on menorrhagia. That's not a thing. The other thing that frustrates me is when people call the levonorgestrel intrauterine system an IUD. And and just it were just people. I get it. Everyone, I, I get it. I'm very type A and OCD. Trust me. I'm working on. I mean, I'm I'm on. I'm serious, you guys. I'm I'm honest. It's it's a real problem. I don't say that like lightly, like in a joke. I mean, it's real. I have OCD and a very type A. And I, I, mean, I try to harness that. I try to make it work for me. But it is it it, it can drive me nuts. And my poor family knows that because I drive them nuts. All to say. In this uh, clinical consensus, it's it calls the levonorgestrel intrauterine system the levonorgestrel IUD. Ooh, it just, just drives me crazy. I can't. I 
breathe and relax. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. So, but yes, please understand that it's not semantics. It is true. Device means non-medicated. Levonorgestrel is a drug delivery system. So it really should say Levonorgestrel IUS. And yes, if you're wondering, I did send a note to the clinical consensus team to please change that. Anyway, as I digress and come back, there is data about the levonorgestrel intrauterine system, thank you, system for regression of EIN. And guys, it works. I mean, according to the data and what ACOG has in this clinical consensus guideline is, quote, Treatment with the levonorgestrel IUS, I'm going to say S even though it says IUD, results in a higher regression rate when compared with treatment with oral progestins alone. So let's stop there for a minute. The reason why it likely regresses it more is, number one, it's a true pericrine. It's a local effect. We know that that works. And compliance is taken out of the picture. So that's a big deal. Now, one of the gaps, one of the things that's unknown is if the resolution rate is even better if you add an oral agent. There was one study that observed an even better regression rate with a combination of the intrauterine and oral progestin therapy compared with levonorgestrel alone, all right? So if you want to do that, I think that's fine. It could be a lot of progestin uh, side effect, but uh, at least the IUS does work. Now, I, w- I would choose dual therapy in patients that are, are you know, have a very high risk, like overt uh, uh, BMI issues, they have diabetes, uh, or if it's been three to six months and I have some regression, but not all the way regressed, not resolution, then I would add a second agent. Remember, that's just me because the guidance says, yeah, there's one study, we need more data, but the question is, does the intrauterine system at 52 milligrams, does it have data to resolve these leads? And the answer is unequivocally yes. And there is data, once again, that because you take compliance out of the way, that the intrauterine system tends to work much better, okay? So ACOG does endorse or it does recommend as one of the treatment regimens if you're going to do conservative care than to use the levonorgestrel intrauterine system. Now, if you're thinking, now, wait a minute, if you got an IUS in there, how are you supposed to do endometrial sampling? And my answer is... Uh, like you would normally do endometrial sampling. You, you can definitely still assess the endometrial cavity with the device, with the system still in place, all right? So it's not a problem. Now, here's a, a little gap here in this clinical guidance because remember we said, yes, you're going to do periodic surveillance every three to six months, up to two years uh, by endometrial sampling. It doesn't actually say what that sampling is. Now, once you've done your initial EMB and you got the diagnosis, then you proceeded to hysteroscopy to make sure nothing else is in there, and you've then chosen conservative management, I would be okay with doing EMB as long as it's more than one pass. Never think that one pass of an EMB is sufficient because typically you're picking up a lot of mucus and some cervical debris uh, potentially. So uh, you increase your yield by multiple passes of the pipel. So by three passes, I think it, it's, it's, it's totally totally fine. I don't believe that every three to six months, the college meant to say you have to do hysteroscopy. I don't think that that's the case. I believe once you've ruled out to the best of your ability uh, an endometrial cancer, it is possible to reassess the endometrial lining. But remember in that periodic endometrial sampling, the ACOG was very, very uh, 
deliberate in saying, hey, we're not going to put which way to do it. We're going to kind of leave that up to, to the practitioner. So yes, endometrial sampling is required every three to six months for up to two years. Obviously, if you have progression to cancer, you, you get out, you bail uh, at that time. But, but it doesn't require hysteroscopy. It's not meant to imply that hysteroscopy is needed every three to six months. Sampling of the endometrial cavity as surveillance with an endometrial pipel, as long as it's more than one pass, should be, according to the data, should be sufficient. And as the last clinical pearl, because we're trying to do uterine conservation primarily in the majority of cases uh, for fertility reasons, we can remind these patients that once this thing regresses and pregnancy is chop, chop, you got to get at it uh, and try to get a pregnancy quickly uh, before any more time uh, elapses. And ideally in that interim from medical treatment to pregnancy, there is a it, there's a tension to lifestyle modification because obesity typically accompanies this diagnosis. You got to get that weight down. So please don't let the oral medication or the intrauterine system do all the work. That is done in conjunction with weight loss. Maybe they uh, qualify for Ozempic or something else, but you've got to get that weight down to take away the, the inherent risk factor for this condition, which is, of course, the, the aromatization of androgens into estrogen. So, so weight reduction is big. The good news is, is that even with in vitro uh, and the hormone levels are resi- re- resolved from that, does not seem to increase recurrence of EIN or endometrial hyperplasia with atypia. So even IVF is reassuring in these patients after proper you know, shared decision-making is done, pregnancy is, is not contraindicated because recurrence does not seem to be linked uh, to that event. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered the upcoming clinical consensus guideline on EIN-AEH. Yep, that's the new term for September 2023 coming from the college. As always, we're thankful for you and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.